Jeremy and I are doing this big story of the Bible for our sermon series right now. We're looking at the grand story and how all the little stories may fit in there. And today I want to talk about one chapter in Genesis, chapter 39, and I was able to, by squeezing the font down, I was able to get the whole chapter there on your study sheet, so it's there. just have to squint at it to read it. Because that chapter is a very interesting chapter. The theme of that chapter is, but the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. So Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house, but the Lord was with Joseph. And, and, and pretty soon, Potiphar starts noticing, this guy is great. And he starts giving him more responsibility. And the Lord's with Joseph. And, and pretty soon, Potiphar's not worried about anything in his house because he knows it's being run better by Joseph than he himself can run it. The Lord is with Joseph. And even at the very end of the story, Joseph ends up in prison. The Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. And the jailer has the same experience as Potiphar. He sees that Joseph is competent. He starts giving him a little responsibility. The Lord's with Joseph. More and more responsibility. Joseph continues to do a wonderful job. Everything he does turns out well. The Lord is with Joseph. And so... In the end, Joseph's kind of running the whole jail that he's in. The Lord is with Joseph. That's a pretty good story. We could preach that story. Right? We could preach the story that for the Lord to be with you means that God always prospers you. The sign that God is with you is that the things that you do turn out well. When you make financial investments, they succeed. When you make business decisions, it happens. If that's not happening for you, probably it's because you're not properly with the Lord. You're not inviting the Lord into your house. I could preach a whole sermon on that. I think I could really, really polish that up. The trouble would be that it doesn't even make sense given the text that's staring us in the face. Right? What does it mean when the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph? Because it certainly doesn't mean that God stopped all the bad things from happening to him. The Lord being with Joseph didn't stop his brothers from deciding to murder him when they got the opportunity to do it. In the very last instant, they said, ah, let's make some money, and they sold him into slavery. It didn't stop him being sold into servitude to a household in Egypt. It didn't stop him from the woman of the house making the moves on him, and when he would not reciprocate, making all kinds of false accusations about him and destroying a little bit of success that he had built up in that place of slavery and being put in an even worse place into a prison. It didn't stop him once he's there in prison and he does kindness to the, to the prisoners that are there, the cupbearer, 
promises. Oh, Joseph, I'm going to... Doesn't stop. The Lord being with Joseph doesn't stop the cupbearer from forgetting about Joseph for the next two years. So what does it mean when the Bible stares us in the face and says, Lord was with Joseph? Well, whatever it means, it doesn't mean that God smoothed out Joseph's path. That's the opposite of what the story tells us. And we all know the end of the story, right? We all want to run right over to chapter 42 and Joseph getting the robe and the collar and getting to rule Egypt and stuff, right? But that is not the way Joseph experienced it. So what does it mean that the Lord was with Joseph? Because Joseph experienced all these things as dark times in his life. Was the Lord with Joseph through the dark? Was he? Well, that's what the Bible says. So what, how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that? Well... I want to say three things about that, because, you know, I'm a preacher. We have three points. That's what we do. There are a lot of things we could say about this, but I think derived from the text itself, there are three points that kind of begin to, to resonate with us about this story. Joseph... His entire family turns on him when they get the chance. All of his brothers turn on him when they get the chance. And they send him to a country he knows nothing about. I, I, I doubt he spoke the language, whatever the language was at that time. He didn't know the customs. He didn't know what was right. He didn't know what... There's a real big issue about the Israelites not eating the right kind of food and the Egyptians thinking they're disgusting. That comes up several times in the larger Genesis text. He didn't know this place he went. He was all alone. But one of the things Genesis is telling us in chapter 39 when it says the Lord was with Joseph is that Joseph is not really all alone. Being with God means never being abandoned. That's the first lesson I want us to focus on. Being with God does not mean that God prevents all the darkness and He just gives your life a path of roses and sunshine. But being with God does mean this. You are never abandoned. You are never left completely alone because God is with you. And what we read in the book of Genesis resonates through the big story of the Bible. It's because of the story of Joseph and stories like it that David can write, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We are never abandoned. Even when Stephen is standing up in front of the entire Sanhedrin, the ruling body, the Senate and Supreme Court of his country, and even when that 
court just loses all of its dignity and just rushes at Stephen to kill him. Drags him outside the city, stones him to death. Stephen looks up and realizes he's not abandoned even in this extreme situation. He says, I see Jesus. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of glory. Being with God means never being abandoned. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I want the strength to live in that truth. Because it is easy to feel sorry for myself. People do let you down. People do kind of abandon you to your face, especially if things aren't going well in your life. Sometimes people will... I mean, they're happy to be around you when things are going well. But when things aren't going well, sometimes people will abandon you. One of the reasons why we have so many instructions in the New Testament about visiting the sick and taking care of those who are in prison and and clothing the, the naked is because natural human tendency, the flesh tells us to kind of shy away when people are going down the door. We do tend to abandon those who are in trouble. But God never abandons us. He is there. And Paul's able to say, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. Paul doesn't say, all things are good. Paul's another one who gives the lie to that easy, cheap theology that says, well, if, if you really love God, everything's going to smooth out for you. If, if you really put your faith in God, God's going to fix your finances, He's going to fix your health, He's going to fix... Paul loved God. And his life was a wreck from a human point. He was poor. He was homeless. He was beaten half to death. All things, he says, work together for good. It's not that all things are good. There is dark. But God is right there taking us through the dark. We are never abandoned. Second point I'd want to make out of this passage here in Genesis 39 is that being with God means the situation is never hopeless. The situation is never hopeless. Joseph looks up. He's, now he's in prison. He was a slave. That's bad enough. Now he's in prison. But the text reminds us, but God was with Joseph. God started turning things in his favor. The situation is never hopeless. doesn't mean it doesn't look hopeless sometimes. But the situation is never hopeless. And again, this is a truth that resonates through the entire big story of the Bible. If you're face to face with a giant in full armor that everybody in the army is afraid of, and he's bellowing out curses and insults against God, the situation looks pretty hopeless. David steps up because David doesn't think it's hopeless as long as God's there. And Goliath comes tumbling down. 
Paul and Silas just trying to do God's work in the city of Philippi, trying to preach the gospel in that city first real European mission work that they did in Philippi. And they're just trying to do good, but there's this girl there that is being exploited. She's got an evil spirit. And because she says crazy things, and sometimes what she says comes out true, her the people who own her are making profit off of her having this terrible situation in her life. This evil spirit, this wickedness that's going on and infecting her and inflicting her. And Paul just can't stand it anymore. He turns around and says, get out. And the spirit's gone. And so's the profit of the owners. It's interesting that the first time, usually when Paul and Silas get in trouble, it's Jewish leaders who instigate the problem. This is actually the first time the Gentiles, straight up Gentiles, instigate persecution against the missionaries. And it's for financial motives. I don't know if that we're supposed to learn something from that or not, but it's true. So in Acts 16, we have this uh, Paul and Silas being hauled before the court and beaten up and banged away in prison. Looks pretty hopeless. I'm in a foreign country. I've got no friends. The only friend I have is the guy sitting next to me, and he's beaten just as badly as I am, and his feet are in stocks just like mine are. Looks pretty hopeless. Acts 16, verse 23 says, After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and he fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Being with God means the situation is never hopeless. Doesn't mean it doesn't look hopeless sometimes. It's never hopeless. In this case, there's kind of a I don't know if it's miraculous. It sure looks miraculous. An earthquake that just hits in just the right way to break the chains and the cell doors open. Whether it's natural or miraculous, it's definitely God's doing. We all know that. The situation is not hopeless. In your life, there are going to be times when you are tempted to give up. That's what hopelessness is. Is to say, what's the point? Why should I keep on keeping on? And the difference between a person who has God in their life and a person who doesn't have God in their life is that you've got a fundamental, unshakable reason to say the situation is not, and as long as God is here, cannot be hopeless. I don't see the way out. I don't know how it's going to be fixed. But God is with me, and the situation is not without hope. One more point I want to make. 
out of this passage in Genesis 39. Another point that kind of resonates through the whole big story of the Bible. The very end of the book of Genesis, when this little story, the story of Joseph, has kind of resolved itself, you can tell when one of the Genesis stories resolves itself, because usually it starts with somebody being in the family of an older male, an older patriarch, and the story kind of reaches its conclusion when that person becomes the patriarch, the one who's kind of in charge. The Joseph story ends in Genesis chapter 50 when he's the one who's in charge. Jacob dies. Joseph uses all of his wealth and all of his influence to have a state funeral procession all the way back up to take Jacob's bones and bury them back up in the promised land. And I'm sure they process back to Egypt. But on the way back to Egypt, Genesis 50 indicates, I suspect the brothers were thinking about this on the whole trip back. Okay, Dad's gone. We know Joseph loved Dad. But we did really rotten things to Joseph. What's he going to do to us now that he's in charge? What kind of horrible vengeance can we now expect? He likes Benjamin. Probably he won't do it to Benjamin. But the rest of us, we're in for it. And so they make up this story. They say, well, Dad didn't tell you, but he told us that you have to... And Joseph knows that that's not even true. It makes him sad, though, that they don't understand him. And they don't understand God very well. And in Genesis chapter 50... Verse 19, Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. I know your intentions were petty and evil. God had a bigger plan. Joseph says, this is what I've come to understand. As I look back on my life story, I realize I have been part of God's bigger plan. And in fact, when we read the book of Genesis, that's exactly what we the readers are clued into all along. Joseph has these dreams, you know, where symbols of, of his brothers and his, even his parents are bowing down to him. Well, we don't know what that means, except we do. Sure enough, that's God's plan all along. God will eventually put Joseph in this position of power to save his whole family. And by doing that, to save all the people that are descended from Abraham, the people that are bearing the promise, the promised covenant, the people that will be the ancestors of the Israelites that will come back to the promised land as he, as he told Abraham they would. Joseph knows God's with him. And he knows that he's been part of God's bigger plan. Being with God means playing a part in a bigger plan. 
It's another one of these truths that resonates through the whole Bible, through the whole big story of the Bible. Being with God means being a part of God's bigger plan. Now, one of the mistakes that we make, and Christians fall into this all the time, one of the mistakes that we make is thinking being with God means that God's part of my plan. I've got goals. I've got aspirations. This is what's going to happen in my family. This is what's going to happen in my career. This is what's going to happen in my love life. This is the way my family's going to turn out. My grandchildren are going to turn This is my plan. And if God's with me, He's going to support my plan. That's a mistake. It's tempting, but it's a mistake. We're trying to turn God into our servant. I don't have a lamp to rub, but I kind of say prayers and, and, and hope God will grant wishes anyway. That's not what Joseph, that's not the conclusion Joseph comes to. I'm pretty sure if God had come to Joseph when he was 17 years old and said, okay, here's the deal. You go through 15 years of terrible suffering and then I'll make you Viceroy of Egypt. I think Joseph might have said, pass. He didn't see what God's plan was. He could kind of figure it out a little bit looking backwards, which is kind of what we all experience. If Joseph had been making his own plan, there's a really good case for him to have gone ahead and slept with Potiphar's wife. I'm abandoned here in this country. My family uh, doesn't care about me. They took money so that I'd be a slave down here. My dad doesn't know I'm down here. Nobody's coming to save me. I've got to save myself. My best opportunity to socially climb in this situation out of slavery is this woman who wants me. It's not right. It's a betrayal. But she's got more to lose than I do. This is my best shot. If Joseph was making his own plans, that's what he would have done. He just says to her, I just can't do it. It would be a sin against God. I mean, it's bad against my master, but it's really a sin against God. I can't do it. Joseph knows there's some kind of something going on in his life with God. And even though he doesn't see what the plan is until much, much later, he stays on board with it. Even in little things. It's not my plan, God. It's your plan. And that story resonates through the rest of the Bible. Even in Gethsemane, Jesus says, not my will, your will. Jesus is actually pitching a plan to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Let's pick a plan that doesn't involve me being crucified. If there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I want to be part of your plan. I want to be part of God's bigger plan. Brothers and sisters, there's a blessing in that for us if we will listen. 
Why is it a blessing to be part of God's bigger plan? Especially if it means sometimes God's going to let suffering happen in my life. Why is it a blessing to be part of God's bigger plan? As He walks me through the light, and He walks me through the dark. Why? Well, there are a couple of reasons. And they're important for us to be aware of. If God is in my life, then what I do matters. The littlest things matter and the biggest things matter. If God is in my life. Being with God means playing a part in a bigger plan. Then even the littlest things I do matter. Over in Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, if somebody gives you just a cup of cold water in my name. They'll be rewarded for that. And he turns around and points to his disciples and says, and I'm going to tell you something. If one of you causes even the least significant one of my brothers to stumble and fall, then it'd be better for you if somebody took a giant rock tied it around your neck, threw the rock into the sea, and let gravity do the job. That's what Jesus says. Even the littlest things matter if I'm part of God's plan. Even when nobody's watching. Even when there's no chance I'm going to get caught. Even when I know with absolute certainty, or as certain as I can be, that I am free and clear of human repercussions, it matters what I do. It matters that I keep myself pure, even if nobody pats me on the back for it. And it matters that I show love, even if I know that my love Nobody's going to brag on me for that. Nobody's going to reward me for that. If I go the second mile, people are going to say, hey, how about a third? Even so, it matters. Because God takes the things that I do and builds them into His bigger plan. That's what He did in the life of Joseph. That's what He ends up doing in the life of Moses. That's what He ends up doing in the life of David. He takes their little decisions and builds them into The plan. It's part of the big story of the Bible that even the littlest things I do matter. It also means the biggest things in my life matter. What if... This is actually a disturbing thought. What if there just is no plan? What if this that we're living through right now, you and me, There's no plan. It's just one thing after another. The sun rises, the sun sets, you're born, you live for a while, and you die. There's no plan. If you really thought that were true, now, we've got people who are trying to act like that could be true. But if you really thought that was true, 
the most important things in your life would lose their significance. If there's no grand plan, if God's not there, and there is no plan, if this isn't going anywhere, then even your love for your children, your love for your family, even your sacrifices don't matter at all. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's hard to figure out in terms of this life under the sun. Why being smart is better than being foolish. Why being good is better than being bad. It just doesn't matter if there is no grand plan. But if you believe that you're with God and God is with you, if you've had revealed to you the truth that God has a plan and what you do matters, then the most important actions in your life, just like the smallest actions in your life, are all part of the raw material God is using to bring His plan into the world. We are here to make God's kingdom a reality while we're here and to welcome the Son of God back when He returns. Everything you do, big and little, matters. It's easy to tell ourselves, why don't I just give this up? Who cares? It's easy to get in that loop. Remember, God has the biggest plan. And what you do is a part of that plan. Just like Joseph. Just like Abraham. Just like Moses. Just like Joshua. Just like David. Just like Elijah, just like Isaiah, just like Jesus. God takes what you do and brings His plan into the world. If you need to respond to God's great invitation to get on board with the plan, to make your life what it needs to be so it can be part of what the world needs to be, what the universe needs to be, if you need prayers publicly, or there's something you need to say to the church publicly, then in just a moment you can come forward and tell us what's going on. Or you may be ready to receive baptism. Today may be the day that you decide, I want to put on Jesus Christ in baptism. I want my sins to be washed away. I want to start the new life. If you have a need like that, why don't you come forward Tell us what we can do for you as we stand and are led in song.